it's a betrayal of the highest order, you know. It was for me. That's why I resigned. I resigned in protest of what they were doing because I couldn't, I couldn't come to terms with staying in an organization that would treat their injured so poorly. It felt like I was living a lie for the previous 27 or so years to find out what they were really like. Veterans say they feel betrayed by the very government that sent them to war. I'm Nikki Reitmeyer, and this is Why. Has the federal liberal government failed to keep one of its key election promises, improving support for veterans? They said they'd provide one caseworker for every 25 veterans. But while the average has dropped, the ratio is still about 1 to 33. And in places like Kingston, Thunder Bay and Calgary, that number is even higher one caseworker for every 42 veterans. And as David Aiken from Global News reports, it's not like they don't have the money. Every year, most government departments leave some money in their approved budgets unspent. But leaving money on the table at the Department of Veterans Affairs was something Justin Trudeau vowed he would never do. And on the campaign trail in 2015, he attacked the Harper government on that issue. They left unspent more than $1 billion that Parliament allocated for veterans' support. Canadians know that this is wrong. In government, the Trudeau Liberals are on pace to match the Harper Conservatives for unspent or lapsed funds at Veterans' Affairs. In 2016, nearly $81 million went unspent. In 2017, $143 million. And for the fiscal year that ended in March this year, nearly $150 million was left on the table. Now, that represents between 2 and 3% of the overall Veterans Affairs budget, just about the same unspent ratio as the Harper Conservatives. But when the Conservatives left even that amount unspent, the Liberals, in opposition, said it amounted to stealing from veterans. How can they justify swiping a billion dollars from veterans while wasting hundreds of millions on their own self-indulgence? Barry Westholm is an advocate for Canadian veterans. He's a former Master Warrant Officer and Sergeant Major for the Joint Personnel Support Unit, that's JPSU, in Ontario. I got started in the Canadian military in 1982. I call myself an accidental soldier because none of my family had any background. And I, I joined then as an 18-year-old and uh, spent my 32 years in. So with over three decades in the military, I imagine at one point at least, your service took you overseas? Yes, uh, it took me to Cambodia, uh, where we were uh, with the United Nations Transitional Authority over there. They were still dealing with the Khmer Rouge. It was a very eye-opening experience. It took me to Haiti, where they still have lots of problems. Poor old Haiti. It took me to uh, Syria, where I was in a, a no-fire zone with the United Nations there as well. I went to Germany, and I saw the Berlin Wall come down, which was really something special. Been to New Zealand on a uh, military exchange, so I, I've been uh, well traveled, I guess, through the military. God, I would say, what was it like seeing the Berlin Wall come down? That was really, it was spectacular to see these people who, again, for generations, have been told what was on the other side of that wall, and they were told lies, right? So when they finally got out over there, I think it was sort of like shock and disbelief. I wonder if, in some ways, that works a little bit as an analogy for what it's like when you're in the military 
and you see the other side of the wall, what it's like to be a veteran, and it might not necessarily be as appealing. Once you get over onto the other side of the wall, you kind of go, whoa, wait a minute, this isn't what they told me it was going to be. Well, that was that's very insightful, because what the military does the minute you join is you go through a very serious uh, uh, conditioning program, and it's, it's, it's psychological. So they, they break you down as a civilian, and then they build you up as a soldier. You're trained to kill a human being. If you took it, everything down and you got right down to the basics, you're trained to kill people and do it efficiently. And that's not a normal way to think for anybody who's a civilian. Not even the police or any of those guys think like that. We also uh, waive our charter rights to say that I will give my officer the authority to order me to my death. Okay? And, and again, Canadians love their charter rights. It's the great thing to have, but a soldier can't have one because he can't do the job if you're protected that way. So when you do eventually leave, and say it's early because you got really seriously injured, they don't take the time to retrain you as a civilian. They leave all that intact. So the people that they're allowing to go out the door are really still soldiers, and they have a difficult time, at least many of them have a very difficult time trying to adjust. And we know that one thing that soldiers deal with often is mental health issues, things like post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. Can you tell me, how does a soldier develop something like PTSD? I've got PTSD, so that'll be easy to do. Uh, That said, my experience is very personal, and it's unlike other people's experiences. This is all a very personal thing, PTSD. Uh, For me, I was in a situation in Haiti, off the actual main island, where I got involved with a, a gang, a group of people, who were very upset, and there was only two of us there, me and another soldier. I was in charge. So I told the other soldier that I was going to protect the scene and for him to go get some help. There was a nearby U.S. uh, Special Forces encampment. And the minute he left me alone was the minute that the the crowd sort of turned on me. And it devolved into a situation where I I decided what I was going to do was I was going to uh, kill a couple of uh, the leaders, the ones that were really inciting the crowd, and then I was going to kill myself. And so I had my, uh, my sidearm all cocked and drawn and ready to go. And I was just about to put that into action when the Special Forces guys arrived. Now, when they arrived, the entire situation de-escalated because now we had weapons on the ground, and the crowd knew that they didn't have somebody that was pretty much, you know, a lamb to, to slaughter. And that's what they do over there, is they'll, they'll, they'll hack you to pieces with machetes. And then one of the things they did was they put a tire around your neck, put a little diesel in the bottom, and set that on fire. So it's a really horrendous way to go, and I know that's what I was looking at. So that incident stuck in my mind, and I relived it every night, and I still do live it most nights. I call it a Hiroshima shadow. It's like a nuclear bomb went off, and the incident left an imprint on my mind, my psyche. And a lot of that, I think, might happen to other guys, but that's my experience with it. A Canadian, when he sees, for example, a child being abused or um, a lady being hurt, will step in. As a soldier, you have to be trained not to step in because there could be cultural norms in different societies, and there are, which over here are just, you would never even consider they would exist on the planet Earth. You know, they're, they're, they still stone people in some countries. They stone them. If that's the way it is, and you're ordered not to do anything, then you just have to walk on by. And that's something that you're going to have to live with. And it's tough. I think in some cases, not doing stuff or not acting on an event like that 
is tougher than being in, in one where there's violence because uh, it's just it's just not Canadian. It's counter to everything that I was uh, trained to be and raised to be. You really have to uh, stay focused on your job. I can't it's even tough. begin to imagine how, oh, it's, how it's, difficult it's that would be. Yeah. Well, you know, that's, uh, it's just wild. It, I remember, and again, in Haiti, we went to an orphanage. We went up there, and they were a little ways up on a mountain, and it was very, it, it was, you know, a mud floor, no toys, all the kids, you know, sitting around in a crowded building, and we're like, oh, my gosh. So what we did was we just gathered up some scrap metal and stuff like that and old boards, and we made bunk beds. They were rudimentary. And we put these bunk beds together and we brought them all up to the orphanage so the kids didn't have to sleep in the mud. What we didn't know, we made them targets instantly. So the minute we put that stuff in there is the minute that place was raided. And they stole all the beds, all the toys, everything else. And they were probably in a worse situation, you know, within a week than they were before we did that. And again, it's it's just you have to think totally differently. Uh, but there's another example for you. My God, that must be so hard then to come back to regular society and and adjust and be willing to lend a hand to a stranger that you see on the street or or not be bitter when you see someone in need because you've been conditioned to shut down and turn a blind eye and become emotionally dead to those situations. You've been you've been trained to follow orders including the one that they say, you know, Barry, sorry, man, you got to go in there. You're going to die. We know that. And uh, I say, yes, sir. And you go. What goes through a soldier's head in that moment? Do you do you think for even just a second, I don't want to do this. I don't want to go. Or are you just so trained to say, yes, sir, let's do it. That's that's the way it's supposed to work. It's called unlimited liability. That's the clause that they use. If that if that's invoked, that clause, that means something is very dire and things are going sideways. So you're really not going to be thinking too much about yourself. You'll be thinking about your buddies. You think about your buddies, you think about the mission. And again, that's the way we're trained to think. Mission, what we have to do, soldiers, the people you're responsible for, and at the very end, it's yourself. And it's called mission, soldier, self. That's the priority for a soldier. You know, that reminds me of a press conference in Edmonton that I watched with the Prime Minister. A veteran stood up and he said, I was prepared to be injured in the line of duty when I I joined the military. Nobody forced me to join the military. I was prepared to be killed in action. What I wasn't prepared for, Mr. Prime Minister, is Canada turning its back on me. I totally empathize with that guy. He's in stellar company of injured military personnel and their families out there that are going through the exact same thing. It's a betrayal of the highest order, you know. It was for me. That's why I resigned. I resigned in protest of what they were doing because I couldn't, I couldn't come to terms with staying in an organization that would treat their injured so poorly. It felt like I was living a lie for the previous 27 or so years to find out what they were really like. They bought into it. They believed it. They went and they, they did what they were supposed to do, lots of them with severe disabilities. Like, you, you know, when you get a leg blown off, it's more than getting a leg blown off. There's lots of associated parts that can go with it. So, yeah, to come back, then get rushed out the door, <laughs> then go to Veterans Affairs Canada in disarray, and you're sort of like, well, okay, what, what do you guys do? And they say, well, here's all your forms. Here's 500 pages of this and that and this and that, and then you have to appeal. Holy jeez, it's just... I, it's just such disheartening.
uh, feeling. And uh, I, like I say, I really empathize with these guys and gals. Coming up later in this episode. And so you've got that entire generation of injured military families out there trying to figure out what's going on. And you've got a military that's saying, no, everything's fine because they have to protect whatever it is they're trying to protect. I don't know. It's not their soldiers, that's for sure. You're listening to This Is Why, a global news radio show and podcast. What I don't understand is why. Why does there seem to be such a lack of desire for the government to actually act on the things that they're saying. They say that they want to support veterans. They say that they do support veterans. But time and time again, you hear from veterans, they're not getting the support they need. Why? Well, here's, here's a really quick timeline. We went to war in 2001. We didn't have any transitional organization or methodology to handle the injured people that came from that war. We had nothing. So when all the numbers started coming back and higher and higher and higher, and we didn't know what to do, it wasn't until 2008 that they decided to do something at all. So that's seven years of fighting where there was no unit to help transition an injured soldier and their family to civilian life. Now, when they did put it up in 2008, the Canadian Forces gave the Joint Personnel Support Unit, the transition organization I was with, the absolute basement priority that they had. That's level six out of six. And a level six priority in the Canadian forces mean you've got to beg, borrow, and steal, and personnel are going to be almost impossible to get. You know, cleaning staff are higher than that. So they didn't have anything set up when they went to war. When they did set something up, it was far too late, seven years into the war. And even then they gave it the lowest priority, and they kept it that way till 2016. So the uh, transitional program in the Canadian forces was busted from 2008 to 2016, probably the busiest time. And so you've got that entire generation of injured military families out there trying to figure out what's going on. And you've got a military that's saying, no, everything's fine because they have to protect whatever it is they're trying to protect. I don't know. It's not their soldiers, that's for sure. Uh, and you've, you've got the government stepping in saying, well, the military is saying everything's fine. And they're right. The military is saying everything's fine. But they're not doing what they said they would do. They just sort of shuffle it off and, and keep moving. Uh, for example, the military agreed to provide post-release oversight for injured military people until such time as they were stable in civilian society. I think that's fair. They didn't do any of it. Now, I know they didn't do any of it because that was my job, and I couldn't do any of it because I had no people because it was a priority six unit, but it sure did sound good. And uh, that's the way it's been going ever since. It's uh, one of uh, the big mysteries I'm going to be taking to my grave. I just hope it gets fixed. What did you think when you heard that Trudeau's government, just like the government before him, had millions and millions of dollars left over, unspent, that were to be allocated for Veterans Affairs. In this case, $372 million. Well, I do know that spending money does not mean anything's happening. When they say, well, we put $300 million, let's say, for, for veterans, you can spend $300 million bucks on pencils. So I never look at the money figure, but that's a lot of money to return, and it could have been very well spent because they know the situation with transition people. They should be offering them uh, life courses. Uh, that money could have been very, very well spent to, to, to assist the families that have been let down by the uh, transitional organization and are out there uh, having a tough go of it. What would you say to a veteran who may be listening to this now that has had experiences like you've had and has been left with 
physical injuries or with PTSD or or other um, mental issues resulting from their service? What would you say to them if they could hear you? I would tell them to hold their family tight. This thing can be hard on a family unit. Focus on your family, your loved ones, your kids. Focus on your parents. They're all true, right? That's the real stuff. And sometimes when you're feeling let down or you're feeling betrayed, talk to your wife, talk to your husband, your kids, and just focus on the beautiful thing about having a strong family, good friends, and that's, that's what I would suggest they, they, they work on. This vaccine is going to take a while to sort out. Uh, hopefully it will sort out. There's people that are trying. I know they're trying. I'm trying. Uh, but that's what I suggest. Barry, this has been such an important and interesting conversation. I really appreciate it. Uh, thanks for your interest, because without the media, this would have been put under a carpet. I know that. I know that as a fact. So thank you very much. During the 2015 election campaign, Trudeau promised nine veteran affairs offices that had been closed under the previous government would be reopened, and they have been. He also promised to re-establish lifelong pensions as an option for injured veterans and to increase the value of the disability award. Now, his government's done both, but the pension is a maximum 1150 bucks a month, and only about 12% of vets are eligible for that max amount. And when it comes to getting care, just over 50% of vets who apply for disability benefits are processed within the target of 16 weeks. Just 53% had access to career transition programs within four weeks. That's the targeted amount. And 65% of vets in need of long-term care actually received it within the target of 10 weeks. Most recently, this past summer, the federal government agreed to pay $100 million to settle a four-year-long legal battle with disabled veterans. That was known as the Equitas lawsuit. Joining me on the line now is the Veterans Affairs Minister for Canada, uh, Seamus O'Regan. The Minister Minister of Veteran Affairs was a guest on a radio talk show in Vancouver, B.C. called The John McComb Show. I've done a fair amount of work with the Equitas Society, and every time I I, I go, I, I talk to veterans who shake their heads at me and they go, we're not getting the the support uh, that we need. We still feel like we're the enemy when we go and talk to Veterans Affairs because of the attitude of, of the people who interface with them, the civil servants who interface with them. Uh, so if, if all of these wonderful things are happening, why is it that, that there are so many soldiers out there and ex-soldiers who still feel they're, they're getting screwed over? You know, you paint a, a lovely picture, but in reality... There are some serious problems still. Oh, I am I in no way am going through this with rose colored glasses. I mean I will tell you what we are what we are doing. And I will also tell you and, and I'm and again I'm not trying to spin this. Uh, I have gone out and done close to 40 town halls, church basements, regional summits across the country, and you still hear complaints about how you know, people are, are treated at Veterans Affairs Canada. I get that. We are doing our level best to ramp up those resources. Uh, we reopened those offices that were all closed by the previous government. We've rehired 475 people, so more frontline staff, and we will continue to hire more people. I got $42 million from the Minister of Finance to keep us ahead of the backlog. And the backlog of the new one that we're getting is because of the improved disability 
benefits because of the improved services that we're putting in, like a new education and training benefit that came uh, up in, the, in April, we are getting more action. We're getting more people who are calling in. And, uh, and so we want to keep ahead of that curve. And we, and we are attempting to change the culture there as well so that the people on the front lines are capable of making more decisions. But more importantly, we want to make sure that the improved benefits and services that we fought for during the election and that we are implementing now get to those veterans. We're telling them about the benefits and services they're entitled to, as opposed to sitting on them and hoping they don't ask about them. A spokesperson for Veteran Affairs said that lapsed funding, that $372 million that went unspent, does not result in anyone receiving less than they should. They said it's, quote, simply an administrative process. Meanwhile, veterans are still being denied funding for even service dogs, despite a government report showing significant reduction in PTSD. This is Why is produced by John O'Dowd and me, Nikki Reitmeyer. You can find us on Twitter at This Is Why or contact us via email. This is why at CuriousCast.ca. We're a radio show and we're a podcast. So to re-listen to this episode or any past episodes, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. It's totally free. And when you subscribe, give us a rating and a review. And remember to tell your friends about us as well. Thanks for listening. And I'll talk to you next week.